0: hello and welcome to the robert a heinlein book club and in this episode i will uh talk about uh the sixth column, or sixth column, no, no article there. Um, and yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, I'll probably cover it over two episodes. I don't know if I'll go uh, part by part in this one. It, it was published initially in January, February, and March, uh, 1941, Issues of Astounding. It was published under the name Anson McDonald, which was his uh, pen name. And of course, it was uh, like a lot of these... Uh, Astounding serialized novels. They were published later uh, in edited form. Uh, and it was published in 1949. Um, and then now I think it was published under Heinlein's name. Um, so this originally was based on a story idea by John W. Campbell. So he's partially to blame for the premise. Um, the story is very Heinlein esque nonetheless. Um, uh, and of course, they they worked together and they shared ideas, and they were they're part of that building of astounding in the in the early forties. So, um, I don't know. I didn't look at the original um, Campbell like story ideas or whatever. Just read this story, but I like with uh, Methuselah's children. I was sort of reading this alongside the two, two versions. So um, it was a little bit easier to do with Sixth Column than with Methuselah's Children, where I had an audiobook version based on the book, and then I had the original Astounding Publications in front of me. Um, so there's added chapters. Uh, the chapters that are intact are pretty much the same in the, in the revised book version that came out later. Um, now there's a lot of like stylistic changes and not even not in that many really some of the racial things have been changed and so it was rewritten to be a little bit but not very much uh, sensitive on some of the way race is portrayed And, and it's only parts like it's not all eliminated like like the use of the term white when he means americans is fixed sometimes and it's not fixed at other times right but i don't know why that was there wasn't a more thorough rewriting if you're going to rewrite it you know i obviously add chapters to add some pages right make it a little more beefy fine that that's fine and the stuff that's added isn't bad it's it's a lot of how the you know building the movement a lot of technology stuff a little bit of character development is in there but the the stuff you're going to really pay pay attention to especially this term white being changed for americans it's not consistent throughout and Of course, the racist language given by characters is kept in um, referring to Asians as, you know, as as flat faces, uh, a lot of monkey talk throughout that is coming from characters and that's fine. These are not the nicest people. They're military people. They're willing to kill vast numbers of people to achieve their their goals uh one is even willing to betray his own movement at the end although that much is made out of that in the story they're not good people and they're at war with uh, a a nation that totally conquered them so the fact that they're going to make racist statements is not what what bothers me so much i think what what's going to bother most readers today about this is uh the use of the term white to talk about like the Americans as a whole, it's almost like it only would make sense if like the Pan-Asians like wiped out um, everyone but white people (laughs) in the, in the nation and that obviously didn't happen. So uh, to his credit, when he republished it in 49, it's some of that language is taken out and there's a little more nuance there, especially in the aftermath of world war two and the desegregation of the military um, and, and a growing kind of discussion of race in the aftermath of World War II, certainly those are the things that may have inspired Heinlein to to write this differently. Um, but still, the, st- the troubles there's still troublesome technological stuff here, most uh, clearly in like a some kind of barrier, some kind of force field that can be sensitive to race. You know, that even kill people of certain races can be killed from afar with weapons based on somehow they're de- like the DNA could identify their race, right? Which of course, what we call race is a very small part of our genetic makeup, right? It's, it's, just, it's just cosmetic aspects of it. Um, but at the time, and you know, we got to contextualize Heinlein a little bit here, in the end of the 19th century and through much of the 20th century, scientific racism was very alive and well. And, and for, for many scientists at the time and many thinkers, uh, race was the way you divided up the planet, not so much nation, right? And of course, this is something that you have even the Japanese talking about. So the enemy is not Japanese. It's not Chinese. It's actually kind of a hybrid. I mean, there's cultural aspects like uh, that are clearly Japanese or cultural aspects that are clearly Chinese. And uh, the Indians are also incorporated into this, what's called the Pan-Asian Empire. I wish we had a little bit more of that history, because this isn't part of the future history stories. So this is a one-off st- story. I wish we would have got a little bit more of the, the history here to know what happened in Asia, because in 1941, the major ideology of the Japanese is Pan-Asianism. That's often being used to justify their dominance of the Pacific, but that was like the bone they threw to Many Chinese saying, "Well, we are on in the broader struggle against imperialism, especially American imperialism or British imperialism, and therefore our own domination is is a lesser evil than that." Actually, think of that. This is still how many people talk about, like, in the context of the rise of China, right? Or 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 Russia's uh, conflict in Ukraine, war in Ukraine. You know, there's this part of the left that see the the, Amer- the United States as the only significant agency in the world and therefore they 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 tend to apologize for odious actions by by non-western empires because they're not as powerful as the united states right like you have some leftists who think taiwan should be occupied by by china because it's, it's all about america right it's all about sticking it to america i don't know how big that is um, it's not the part of the left that I I associate with, but I mean I do think you got to uh, historicize these conflicts and 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 understand where they come from. And 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 my basic position on these things is is national self determination is 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 the best way to solve these problems, right? Just let the people decide which country they want to live in. But that's that's getting besides the point. the The point I'm trying to make is that the during World War. Two and actually starting early even before that as the japanese start to solidify their their empire over over taiwan over manchuria uh, and then invade china formally um they talked more and more about pan-asianism and they called it the the greater east asian co-prosperity sphere which basically was like asia for the asians was the idea so highland's not pulling this pan-asian idea out of like out of uh, a science fiction kind of a bank, a dream bank of ideas or something. He's getting it from what Japanese were actually talking about and some others too, like they were Chinese leaders. Um Wang Jingwei is the most important that I know of who actually worked for the Japanese and allied with them during the war and and did that because they believed in pan too. They believed that uh, that the Japanese were were not worse than the british or the americans or any other imper- western imperial western imperialist force and asia for the asias had to come first and that the chinese could be part of a broader pan-asian movement so what's described here is the aftermath of a successful pan-asian movement right and i i don't know enough about pan-asianism to as a, like an ideology what they're actually proposing um because i think i like i more or less saw it as japanese propaganda during the war not something that's really based on something they're really going after it was just a way of trying to say well this is really why we're doing this This is why we're conquering the Philippines or Indonesia or China it's to it's to kick out the Western imperialists we're the liberators but I presume um that there was actual ideological concepts and thoughts and proposals being laid out about what panism could be like and would that have been a kind of a uh an East Asian cultural c- consolidation, right? Maybe, I mean, there, there's uh, some, you know, maybe that was a part of it. And then that's where you would have gotten like a pan-Asian identity actually emerged. Obviously in our world, that's never happened. We never got, it was just an idea that was proffered up in the 30s and 40s and it didn't go any go anywhere it's like with the other pan movements pan africanism or pan arabism pan islamism pan americanism they were always like bumped up against real existing national states which could use schools could use the tools of state oppression and to enforce national identities nationalism won out over pan nationalism i guess like and you still have ethno states in some parts, but in much of the world in East Asia, it's actually a place where ethno nationalism sort of ones that wins out, right? Where you have China, Japan, Korea, and yes, in, like in Korea's case, it's split, but there's still this idea of the stream of a United Korea along national lines. As, as farther as, as we go on, that's probably going to be less, less and less actualizable. But you have kind of ethno states in Eastern Asia, but in in India, you had, of course, the partition of India, which created kind of new national identities there. In Africa, you have totally arbitrary borders. And then the struggle to create national identities was in post-imperialism era was especially troublesome. But they were able to do that, too, where there's a kind of a Tanzanian and a Kenyan and a Namibian and a, you know, and a Botswana an identity of sorts, as contrived as that, that may have been. But that's what wins out. It's those kinds of nationalism. Sometimes ethnic, sometimes more of a civic nationalism based on history. The pan nationalisms never, never like really got far off the ground. They're they're kind of inspirational to people. I think I think of Af like, uh, pan Africanism as an example of, of one that I think still inspired people well into the 20th century, as as maybe an alternative. But. Um, it never really worked out but i think one thing i'm reminded of when i read this story is how much pan ideologies seem to parallel scientific racism right so if you're saying the real borders in the world are are not nations but rather like racial identities like Asian, the yellow race, right? The Pan Asians more or less corresponded with the yellow race as was understood by scientific races races at the time. Um, Pan African, of course, saying there's a broader African identity in Africa and in the diaspora. You know that's that's a racial view of of history, right? Which is even more contrived. than nation states, at least many nation states have have ethnicity which is a real thing, um, to base their, their identity off of. So um, anyways, that's a little bit about that. So, so what happens in the story, uh, the sixth column, if you don't know, is the story, as the story begins, we have like basically the last handful of soldiers um, that after a war, that they actually, the Pan-Asians fought over the North Pole. So they got around the Pacific defenses and stuff by going over the North Pole, conquering the Americas after they already conquered the Soviet Union, uh, India, and, and kind of unified Asia. Um, now, they're very East Asian, but if you were to have a map, it, you know, like a, histor- like a, a, a fictional map of this region, it would be, it would include East Asia, India, and Russia right? And maybe some other areas too. So it's, um, even though the Asians we meet are all like East Asian in their way they're presented and they're like, there's a lot of Japanese things here. Their, their identity is, even though there's some Chinese aspects, like kind of a, some of the way the characters behave, like face, that's like talked about a lot, like the concept of face, but the the suicide like suicide for losing face that's more of a japanese thing you have a monarchy which is japanese china didn't have a monarchy by 1941 the japanese certainly did i mean i in my mind even though heinlein doesn't want to do this and say that this is like a japanese or chinese it does seem it's like if japan had won its pan-asian goal that's what we sort of would have gotten maybe something like this and anyways uh our characters are basically those last remnants of the u.s military and you know the, i'm not going to say too much about the characters individually um, maybe a little bit later I'll, I'll talk about them. they're just a group of, of of the soldiers that survive and they're all brilliant people and they eventually ally with other groups like a hobo and uh uh, a guy who looks Asian but actually is white—a little bit more troublesome kind of race, racial thinking there. Um, they get they get their group together, they get their gang together, and they they have a technological weapon that they're able to master very early in the story. In fact, the, the these six, five, six, seven survivors or whatever are only the only survivors of a lab that had some that were experimenting on something, and they all die. Right? And it turns out that this is just kind of a super weapon that's being developed. So they have this weapon. So that's going to be their, their way of fighting against the Pan-Asians. Is this weapon that's a, that's given. It's a super science kind of thing. It can do all sorts of things. It can transmutate matter. So they have a infinite money generator because they can make gold. They can essentially do alchemy. They can... Stun people based on their race, based on the setting. They can, um, like, There's later in the book there's a gas attack and they can turn that into just oxygen through transmutation. They can create halos for themselves. They can do something to do miracles. They can heal people. This is a device that can basically do anything. And it, it, this is a weak part of the story, to be honest. It's just like, um, this allows... Heinlein to do anything he wants to make anything he wants works with just like one kind of technological breakthrough that falls into our character's lap it doesn't have to be really fought for it doesn't have to be achieved it only has to be sort of applied all they have to do is apply it so we don't have like even in rocket ship Galileo uh, one we haven't gotten to it yet in this series but it's one I had read before there's the struggle to actually come up with uh, the, the ship Right. They have to have technological breakthroughs. They have to work at it. The characters here are just given this device um, and it's able to do everything. Right. I think a much more interesting story would have been one that forced our characters to struggle, uh, to build their movement of resistance uh, and have to work harder at it. Because as it is, it's like you're not even sure why they had to wait as long as they did. Because they're so OP'd. Um, Even at the the beginning of the story, they're OP'd. These six guys could have overthrown the Pan-Asians, which is essentially what they do, right? They don't actually have to use too much of the support of the masses that that they build up. So I think this is the weak part of the story, is this. uh, It's kind of a, a technological Mary Sue of sorts, but it's. It's just totally over, it overpowers our, our characters so there's not that much risk of it going poorly. Um, I mean, literally it's a weapon that you can set the dial to which race you want to kill or which race you want to not allow access into your space. So, stupid part of the story, not for me. What is interesting, this is a six column. Now that I will grant, that was a, and I guess that's the title, that's the heart of the story. That is kind of cool. The six-column stuff, I'm I'm kind of down with. I'm interested in that. I am it basically. They, they they try an uprising early on in the story and it fails. So I guess that's they have some limits. But there's an uprising and it leads to the mass executions of like of ten thousand or fifteen thousand whites. You know, put in Americans for it. Um, in the original astounding version, it's whites. Some of those whites get changed to Americans in the edited version, but not all, as I said. Um, so I lost my train of thought for a second. Anyways, it doesn't matter. So they then so they said this, this open resistance is not gonna work. We're gonna have to do another strategy. And they turn towards the sixth column idea. And basically what they do is they, they, they find a loophole in the Pan-Asian's governing policies and, and values and ideas. So the Pan Asians believe, basically, in religious freedom. Um, they accept that, and they don't seem to understand Western religion, which makes them have to be really stupid. That's that's a problem in the book too. Is the Pan Asians are presented as really, really dumb, um, and easily tricked and easily fooled. And yeah, they eventually figure out what's going on, but it's like way it's it's after the movement already spread hydraulic across across the Americas, but. Setting that aside, it's it's an interesting way to say, like, let's use the freedoms, the few freedoms we've been given, right? Because there, there's all sorts of restrictions. Like, you have to have a job. If you don't have a job, you're sent basically to, a, uh, you're arrested as a vagrant and sent to work camps. So it's hard for them to, like, do any organizing openly, right? Because they could be arrested as vagrants, so they need to have some cover. Right. But any organizations forbidden, the only organization that's allowed is churches, is religion. And I will point out, you know, authoritarian states even today do concern themselves with religion because they they see religion as something that can be politicized and a a way of organizing people with loyalties and identities that aren't those of the state. Right. So, yeah, it's it's it's. And I think there's like if you look at American slavery, like churches enslaved people creating churches was a mean way of means of survival. It was also a means of resistance. And after the Civil War, it became a, it became actualized in the spread of churches throughout the South, which became foundations of of black political struggles. Stephen, uh, what's it? Stephen Hand's book uh, on on black political power in the Civil War and after. The, basically the second half of the 19th century is a grade on this. Uh, the, what's, what's it called again? The the World un, Under Our Feet or something like that? Uh, now, A Nation Under Our Feet, it's called, which is just a wonderful book. It's, it's one of the best on the topic that I ever come across. But churches become a foundation of political power later on. So there's real reasons to, to buy this argument. I don't know why they have to create a whole new religion, except that they want to use this super sciency magic shit like they've come, they're like the techno mages from Babylon 5 where they have the technology to basically do anything they want heal people have halos be tall be short uh, create an infant gold supply whatever they want they can just do it with their staff or device in their head or, or under their turban that's why they wear these turbans they get beards they create a whole religion um which I think I'll talk about more of that in the next episode like what goes on in the review because maybe there's something to it um, but they ha- they create a whole new religion. They don't just build off Christianity, or don't become a sect of Christianity. They become some kind of new religion. And and Heinlein actually deals with this to his credit. He there are people who are like, well, I don't want to join this because I'm a Christian and this is like a cult. And then they're like, well, we're open. To, our our God is open to all religions. And and of course the leaders know it's it's bunk. It's not a real religion. It's just a cover for organizing resistance movements, spreading technology, uh, this, this technological device, and then flipping a switch at some point so they can be turned from believers into soldiers, which is also kind of bothersome. I'm I'm sure that's going to bother some readers too. how everyone, but our few main characters are essentially presented as, as drones. Like, and even the Americans who join this church, they're presented as people who can, at the drop of a hat, be converted from, you know, real believers in this movement to non-believers who, who realize they're just there to be soldiers in, in the revolution. But anyways, the idea is to Trojan horse, clearly by now, the sixth column is the idea of Trojan horse in the resistance movement via religion. And I think that's, that's kind of a cool idea. Now, the book version of the story does a lot more with the building of their temples, the architecture of it. That's glossed over in the Anson MacDonald uh, version in Astounding, which is, is fine. It's not necessary. Nothing that's in, you can read the Astounding version and get the story. There's, there's very little you wouldn't get. Um, there's a little bit of character development, a little bit on the building of the organization. And it's all in the middle part of the story the beginning is pretty much word for word the same and the in the last two third is about word for word the same but you know more on the technology and how they use it to make stuff and make gold and and set up the organization in the Sony version it's just there's a like a break and then it's just oh it spreads to all these cities we get more on how that happens there um and it, it's good stuff actually But anything to say now about this? I think what I'm going to talk about next time is um, uh, maybe the religious aspects, some of the religious conflicts and tensions that appear in the book and then the ultimate resolution of it. Because by halfway through the story, all you basically have is the network being established with our our characters as leads. And then I want to talk more about the interaction between the church and the Pan-Asians. Because there's some interesting things there too, how the Pan-Asians kind of figure out that this is not a real church. Um, and then, of course, I have a lot, bunch of problems with this story. Uh, they should be clear to you now. I'm overall disappointed with this one. I, I have read Yellow Peril stories that have not like, bothered me as much as this one did. Um, and it's because I kind of hold, I kind of respect Heinlein a little bit by this point. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't find value from his work, even though ideologically we're we're in very different places. I'm, I I do like, I, I am more of a libertarian socialist, if you didn't know that by now. Um, but you know, I'm, I have my sympathies for the Soviet Union at, at times, and and that's why I find kind of the tension between individuals and and, and community right like I I like that communitarian aspect of of alternative political visions because I I think that's the most devastating thing about capitalism is is the atomization of communities and individuals and I want alternatives to that and I want to find those in the political left Um, like Heinlein's not on board that project I realize that I, I realize he's got another project but there's things I can shake his hand on right um this story doesn't have as many of those those moments like um what's the one the is it the Edgar Rice Bur- uh, Burroughs' story the Mucker like that's a yellow peril story that didn't bother me as much i, I haven't read many of them but this one um just showed Heinlein being out of touch In his own time, even like he's really grasping onto kind of the worst remnants of scientific racism at a time when it's being used by by these fascist states like he he, this is written at a time when war had already started in Europe, right, where the persecution of Jews had turned into I mean, not not it would be until the Soviet Union invasion that you start getting mass murders. But murders were taking place. Maybe they weren't massed yet. Um, But the war in China had been going on for five years by this point. The criticisms of scientific racism were out there. I don't know why he kind of leaned so heavily into them. And I wonder if he would have published this originally as Heinlein uh, at the time, even maybe using the pen name, gave him some cover. But Anson McDonald, as far as I can tell, he's not like a, a Richard Bachman pen name where it's really a different persona it seems it's more like oh if i want to publish two stories in one issue of astounding i'm going to need a different name right. i mean he publishes it later as a book under his name so he's not distanced himself from the book using the pen name it's just more of a practical um thing but it's not he should have known better on these things i think Like, especially calling, like using whites when he clearly means like the American population. How do you live in America and not know that America was multiracial? Or know there are Asian Americans and know there are African Americans? How, how, How do you not, you know that? And it's such an odious oversight. I'm glad it's fixed somewhat in the later version. But also the science of like using race like DNA, like the, like the genetic foundations of, of race as a weapon, like that you can literally turn a dial on a weapon so it can go from killing whites to killing blacks or killing Asians is pretty gross. Um, even from that standpoint, maybe if you saw that in the 19th century, you might think different. You might contextualize it a little bit more. It's hard to say, okay, I'm going to give that a pass because of the time when it's being written in 1941 that's my feelings on it but maybe 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 there's a different point of view on this but yeah um there's a lot of wow moments in this this story frankly but i'll try to uh come at some of the things i find that maybe a little bit more positively in the next episode some of the things that i found at least interesting worthy of talking about because there's a lot here that's worth talking about um this this could do with like a page one sort of rewrite. where, where you, you change the technology, where you don't have a technology that just solves all the problems for our, our heroes, where it's something they have to earn and struggle to get. It's like the Deus Ex Machina is given us only on the first page of the story. That's not good. Uh, the The way America is presented as an all white civilization needs to be changed. But th- there's the cool stuff here with the organization, right? And, wh- and we know Highline's interested in that. It's throughout his career. You know, you have it in uh, um, the the Volt in twenty one hundred stuff. You have it in the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. You, Stranger in a Strange Land has a lot of about organization of alternatives too. So, yeah, there's there's value here, but it's it's got its limits, uh, honestly. So, anyways, that's gonna be it for now. I'll see you next time.